the right idea at the right time. The miracles of logistics every day. I just challenged all of their rules. Technology is revolutionizing this industry. Changed our lives. Close your eyes for a second. New York, Hong Kong, Paris. We're more connected. You just never know where the next innovation will come from. Rules are beginning to change. This is Longitudes Radio, a podcast with today's leading experts about the future of technology, global trade, sustainability, and logistics. From Atlanta, I'm Brian Hughes. And I'm James Rowe. Today we're talking with Bren Friedman. She's the editorial director and curator for the TED Institute. She's also got a, an extensive background as a producer, journalist, author. Um, I think we could actually do a full podcast just on Bren, and you should look her up on IMDb. She's, she's got quite a profile on there. Well, let's get to Bren, and she can uh, share a little bit about herself and the TED UPS partnership in general. Bren, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank uh, you. I want to start with a lot of people when they hear the word TED, they think of a lot of different things, right? To you, what what is the TED experience and why does it matter? Well, I think, as you say, TED means different things to different people. I've been a participant at TED. In fact, long before I ever worked at TED, I would go to the TED conference. It used to be down in Long Beach, California, and um, – I would call it camp for the brain because you would go there for five days and listen to one speaker after the next who was absolutely at the cutting edge of his or her field, whether it was a, a poet or an astrophysicist or a mathematician or a musician, it didn't matter. And it was just a feast for your brain, to tickle your brain, to share ideas and to meet like-minded people and to take those ideas because the ideas were free. It's a democracy of ideas, right? And so the ideas were free and they were handed to all of us to do with them as we would. And I just found it incredible. So when I had the opportunity to work with Ted, I jumped at it. Mm -hmm. And do you have a favorite Ted Talk by any chance that stands out to you? I know there's, there's <laughs> quite a, a few lot to of choose them, from. Actually. All of the UPS talks are my oh. favorite TED Talks. <laughs> yeah. Great answer. Yeah. yeah, She knows her audience very yeah. <laughs> well. Why do you think we're such a good match? Well, I think the answer to that is useful in a larger context. We started something called the TED Institute um, about four years ago. And what's interesting about TED, uh, as I just said, TED is a place that is like a magnet. It attracts people who are writers and professors and philosophers. And, and so many, many people have giving a TED Talk sort of on their vision board or it's part of something that they've always, they've dreamt of doing and it, and it becomes sort of the pinnacle of what they do. But we started to think, what about all those people out there who might have never heard of TED, and if they have heard of TED, have never perceived themselves as being a TED speaker. What about all those people out there in business where they are at the cutting edge of thinking about things that have real consequences and practical applications and, and may not be sort of the TED already converted audience. What about that world of people? What happens if we go in and we mine the rich ideas for people who have never even thought of themselves as a TED speaker. And that's what we did. We've gone out to several companies um, 
including IBM, BCG, State Street, uh, Tommy Hilfiger, Merck, all sorts of companies that we've gone out specifically in different categories. And we were really excited about UPS because UPS is a global logistics company that has reach in a way that most companies don't. And when you're dealing with logistics, you're not just dealing with moving a package from place to place. You're thinking about cutting-edge transportation. You're thinking about cutting-edge tracking systems. You're trying to figure out how do you get a vaccination to the most remote place in Africa. You're thinking about climate change. You're thinking about vehicles and the future of cities and density. So the kinds of things that UPSers have to think about are the kinds of things that the rest of us have to think about. But in UPS, you probably have to think about it first and early. And so we were really interested in mining for those ideas and partnering with a company like UPS to see if we could unearth ideas that were genuinely worth sharing. So did anything surprise you? You know, you've been doing it for four years. Did you learn something along the way, um, you know, throughout that process that kind of surprised you or anything like that? I've never learned anything new. Um, That sounds like a TED experience, right? (laughs) Um. When you say, did anything surprise me, are you talking about people, content? What do you mean? Um, yeah, I mean, I think throughout the process, the learning, like, you know, how did, the, how did these corporations benefit from it um, in ways that maybe you didn't suspect? Well, I think that one of the things, I, I guess I'm just going to answer it more specific to UPS from, for a moment and say one of the things that surprised me was how humble people are at UPS in particular, what a team culture UPS is, and how so many people did not want to put themselves on stage or did not want to take credit for their own ideas. They always wanted to make sure that the, it was about the team, it was about other people. It was, you know, they didn't think that they were worthy. And and I think just for me personally, one of the most moving experiences that I've had in the TED Institute and at UPS in particular is watching people genuinely transform themselves into thought leaders, into people who know that they have an idea. They certainly know they have an idea, they have an expertise, but they don't think that that idea might apply to a general audience. And they've never thought about it beyond maybe a technical PowerPoint. They haven't thought about it as a story. They haven't thought about it as having much broader, much wider implications that a general, well-educated audience might um, be interested in. And I also think it's very difficult, you know, doing a TED Talk, if you're not a, even for somebody who is a natural speaker and even for somebody who is an author and, and, and talks all the time, a TED Talk can be nerve-wracking. If you're somebody who never talks in public and if you are, if you do talk in public, you've only done it with note cards and an hour-long you know, PowerPoint and charts and things like that. It's a very naked, very vulnerable experience. And I just have so much appreciation um, for the people who are willing to step forward and go through that process. So it sounds like what you're saying is 
all of us have this ability within us to be good storytellers. Is, is that fair? I, I do think so. Everyone has a story to tell, for sure. And I think that it's important for everyone to learn how to tell whatever story you're telling. And it doesn't matter if this is the most unique idea in the world. I think learning how to communicate, learning how to be vivid, learning how to connect with others, learning how to be your most passionate self, those are essential human skills. So being real, basically, is kind of at the core of all those things. Absolutely. I think being real is at the core of, of any genuine communication. And just to quote Maya Angelou, you know, uh, people don't remember what you say, but they remember how you've made them feel. So we talk a lot about that at TED and as part of the training, not just in terms of body language, but in terms of authenticity. What we do with UPSers and with other people at the TED Institute, it's a 12-week process. For If you're chosen to be a speaker um, for a TED at UPS, First, you have to go through an, first you go through an application process, which is pretty rigorous. Then I spend a fair amount of time either going back and forth on email and then on the phone talking, digging more to really understand, you know, if the idea has legs, if it can really, you know, sort of stand up to a real talk. If we pick a person to talk, then they are given and assigned a speaker coach, which is not to say not a speech writer, but a speaker coach. And they work with that speaker coach for 12 weeks. And that can be 40, 50, 60 hours. That can be 30, 40, 50 drafts. Um, and then they rehearse in front of me via Skype with the speaker coach. That's, that happens three times. And we give a lot of feedback. And then we come to the event and we do another rehearsal before the actual day, an onstage rehearsal. And then we actually give the act, the talk itself. So it's, it's you, pretty intensive. Yeah, that's You great. do a ton of public speaking obviously. Do you ever get nervous? Do I get nervous? Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you ever get nervous before the lights go on or, all the time? Well, I think that that might be helpful to for some people to hear you say that. Do you have any tips for people who just have an aversion to getting up on stage and doing something like that? Well, I I think everybody, it's almost cliche to say that public speaking is sort of the number one or number two greatest fear that people yeah. have. Snakes should be number one, <laughs> but I mean, that's one. the only right answer, should but I, you know. See, I vote for heights, but okay. Yeah. Um, first of all, to know that you're not alone, uh, that this is a profoundly shared experience, uh, particularly when you're talking about something that you have nothing to hide behind. You're not an actor. You're not hiding behind somebody else's lines. You're not being somebody else. You are being yourself. And if you're being your most profound self about something you care most profoundly about, that is very, it feels like high stakes. But it also means that you are the perfect person to deliver this talk. So what do we do um, to help people get over their nerves? There's a lot of things. To start with, I think the most important thing is that you authentically care and know about this and that your talk is not about you. Your talk is a gift. Your talk is a gift to the world. You already know your idea. You already know what you think. And so you're not doing this for your own benefit, and you're certainly not going to do it for your own self-aggrandizement. I mean, that's just narcissistic. If you think of your talk as a gift, then you stop thinking about it as 
how do I look and more about how do I help this audience? How do I help people understand what I'm saying? How do I communicate it to them in a very clear way so that they can take this and maybe they can transform this idea into something even bigger, even better that can change the world? So I think part of it is getting out of an egocentric, narcissistic way of thinking and really considering it a gift. So that that's one thing. And that's a kind of a brain shift and not an easy one. And Yeah, I imagine that, uh, you know, when you're going through this too, you have to understand that your story might be coming through your mind and out a certain way and that you guys will help shape it so that it's even more engaging, right? Yes. So we, we're looking for storytelling techniques. Um, one of the things I'm always saying to people is, you know, generic is the enemy of the memorable. So if you are just using a bunch of generic terms of this is great and this is fantastic and like, what are you talking about? That is absolutely meaningless. Um, if you're talking about something, saying, you know, I'm very afraid that something will happen to my daughter. Okay, that doesn't help me. Give me, so I will say to somebody, no, I want to hear it. I wake up at two o'clock in the morning and I watch the clock tick by. And if she's not here by 2.07, I start to pace the floor. And the next thing I do is I start to think, you know, has she run out of gas? Is she wrapped around some tree? Is she, like, that starts to get vivid. I'm hooked. Right? <laughs> I'm in. I'm nervous. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. a little nervous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, wait, it's kind of like a show don't tell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Paint the scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's it's theater of the mind, mm -hmm. right? And that's what's sticky for people. I, I'm hearing realness, uh, authenticity, those are big things. When you're getting submissions and you get this a lot, whether from UPS or anything, is it just kind of you know it's good, it's an innate, you see it, or are there certain things you're looking for? I think it's a combination of things. I know what I'm not looking for. So I would say I'm I'm better at what's not good than I am at what is good. I do first a process of elimination. So for instance, a lot of people think that a TED talk is an inspirational talk, right? And so because TED talks can be inspiring, which is not the same as an inspirational talk. So I we get not specifically from UPS, but in everywhere, TED, you know, I had cancer, I survived cancer, T you know, terrible, inspirational, you know, I had faith, I did this, it made me close to my family. I mean, very, very, very moving and, and, and much more beautiful and much more terrible and, you know, stories like that. But there is not an idea worth sharing, you know, the idea that having a terminal disease can change your life and bring you closer to people while profound and moving, is not something that we haven't heard before. So one of the things that I look for is something that's surprising. Generally, I there's very few entirely personal stories that actually make it to the TED stage. There are some, absolutely, and, you know, th there are. But in general... What I say to people is we're looking for a fresh and new idea. It may or may not be connected to your personal story. I would give you two examples of two of the most popular stories on TED right now. Sir Ken Robinson, who has more than 40 million hits, and his TED Talk is about how schools kill creativity. 
right? The whole education system kills creativity. Now, in that talk, he is funny, he is moving, he is, but he does not talk about himself, not once. There's not one personal reference in that talk whatsoever. Amy Cuddy, on the other hand, um, who's from Harvard and really talks about the way our bodies change, how we can change our minds by changing our bodies. It's like you change your physiology and you can change your body. And she has a very um, a fun and profound and interesting talk. And she's the one who's famous for the Wonder Woman power pose that, you know, all sorts of people do to feel strong, you know, before they go on stage. And we do it at TED, all this stuff. But it's not until the middle of her talk that it's even revealed that she was in a terrible car accident. She had to learn how to walk, how to talk. I mean, here's this person at Harvard who didn't feel worthy. And she kind of reveals this sort of personal story, which lands very powerfully and very profoundly in the middle of her TED Talk. So not all TED Talks are personal, but all TED Talks are authentic to the person giving them. And that is really important to me. I don't look for any, like, I will look at a talk, I will look at an interesting idea, but I'll realize this person might have read about it. They might have done a great book report, but they are not authentically, they haven't, they're not the researcher. They're not the expert in that field. They haven't experienced it personally. Like, there has to be an authentic connection to an idea. The idea has to be surprising and new in some way. It has to be something worth sharing that somebody's going to want to spend 20 minutes listening to. So it's much easier to cut talks out than it is to figure out which ones to include. And that is what takes a lot of conversation and digging and all of that. So it's the third year at TED at UPS, and this year's theme is what if? It's a question that can lead you in a lot of different directions, but why do you think it's a question worth exploring? Well, I think it, the answer is in the question, right? The, the idea of what if can take you to the most grand ideas. What if we rethought our entire way that we're planning for cities? We have a talk like that this year. People are looking at trends and they all think cities are becoming much, much more dense in the future. But what if we're wrong? What if we've misread that? What if we could do it differently? What if, I mean, for me, the idea of what if opens up an entire world. In fact, it was last year's theme as well. And because there was so much richness and it, what we like to do when we think of themes, I, I say that we like to open the door, but still maintain a container, right? So, but I think what if opens the door to your imagination, it allows you to imagine a future, it allows you to rethink the present, it allows you to think differently about the way things are currently being done and to imagine ways that things have never been done. So I think it's it's roomy <laughs> as a concept, and yet it's provocative. Yeah, so it leaves a lot of space to explore and offer a wide range of topics. And, yes. and you know what's exciting is that some of these talks can actually make their way to the main TED page. You know, from companies like UPS, when our when our talks get to the main page, can you describe what happens to them? Sure. All of the talks get online in some way or another, but some of them go onto the homepage of TED.com, and that's where the talks are. The the talks are kind of get premium space. Um, what's interesting is that not all the talks 
from the TED conference itself, the, the main TED conference. Not all of those even go onto TED.com. You know, you can show up as a speaker on the main stage of TED and have your talk not go on TED.com. So there's no guarantee for anybody anywhere. It is, again, a democracy of ideas and a meritocracy of ideas, and that is it. But we were very, uh, we are very lucky. We've had several UPS talks go up, and that means that they go through an editorial board at TED. I look at the talks. Obviously, I'm always hoping that every talk is worthy of TED.com. We're always shooting for that. That is the, the standard. But we don't have any expectation and there's no quid pro quo just because somebody's a partner does. There's no guarantee of anything ever. It is a completely independent process. Once I've seen the talks on the stage, I then recommend talks to be considered and then there is an editorial board and we all sit in and people discuss the talks and argue and talks get voted on. And then the talks that are chosen, the person, the speaker is contacted by the homepage people. There's all sorts of work, all sorts of social media work that goes into it. They're written up and then the talk is uh, debuted. Interesting. I think maybe a, a good place to close um if you take out your crystal ball, we you know said TED Talk, and it's almost synonymous with different kinds of talks, or it's a graduation speech or whatever. Do you think decades from now, people are still talking about giving TED Talks? I do. I think that TED Talks will always be relevant. I think TED has really been the pioneer in a certain form of authentic, naked, unadorned storytelling that is really about the power of the speaker and the power of the idea, and it doesn't need anything else. And I think if I imagine TED will continue to exist, and what's clear is that there are many, many places experimenting with the value of speaking. And I think that the more we are talking to each other in the most human and most authentic way, the better off we all are. Bryn, thank you so much for being with us. It's James said we could have probably done an hour just on you and your stories and your background, but we'll uh, save that for the next one, right? Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.